So I guess the first place to start could be something like right now. So a lot of us have come to this room, to this place, um, because we feel that in our own lives we Well, whether we feel like we're lacking something, like we're missing something, there's something that we're not exactly kind of getting correctly, or whether it's just kind of too much and we feel that we don't really have space for ourselves. Um, or we're aware of our minds moving, right? So we are homo sapiens sapiens, right? So we are aware that we're aware, right? So we can be aware, we're aware that our mind is a little bit too much. And people are looking for people are looking for ways to to kind of calm that down to combat that. Um, you know, when you look at mental sicknesses, a lot of them come down to a negative feedback loop where the person is kind of experiencing something that's in their mind that they don't want to be experiencing. So they're trying to change it, trying to force it, shift it away. But their efforts are creating more of the same, which is what things like depression and anxiety and even different forms of trauma. Um, it's really because there's something that's arisen in us, a feeling, a sensation, a, a mind state. And our way of relating to that actually worsens it, actually makes it more painful, more intense, more unpleasant. And then it kind of repeats. So it's kind of like um, if you, um, this is a terrible example, especially because so many of you like dogs, but like if you like lit the end of a dog's tail on fire, right, and it's painful, so it's kind of running around to get away from the fire, but the fire's following it because it's connected to it. And the wind is kind of feeding the flame, so it's kind of making it worse. And the stronger it gets, the more it's trying to run, but it doesn't realize that that flame is actually connected to it. And the way for it to put out that flame would actually probably be something like to sit. I just thought of that example, by the way. <laughs> so, um, so I'm originally from Andover, Andover, Mass. Who was at the healing, by the way, just so I know? A lot of people. Um, and when I, I went to college for physics, and when I was there, I kind of had a breakthrough that I realized that my life kind of wasn't mine. It seemed like um, the path, the trajectory that I was on wasn't really in line with my true self. It, it was kind of, I didn't know what to do. My mom was like, oh, you could do this or this or physics, and this school is physics, and they're giving you a, a kind of scholarship. You should go there. So I just kind of went to this school. And very quickly, I kind of realized this isn't what I want. And so I switched to fine arts, not because I knew what I'd want to do, but because <coughs> it felt like something that I wanted to be doing at that time. It seemed like a nice thing to do then. And also, and this is my freshman year of college, and also at this time, I, I met a monk. So a monk came to my school and he gave a talk 
Um, and I remember sitting in the auditorium, and he was talking up on the stage, and I had my, my art notebook with me, and as he was talking, I was taking notes. And, you know, by the end of the talk, I filled the whole page with notes. It was one of these big, I don't know what that is anymore, A4 or something. But it was one of these big pages. Um, and there's something about it that really made sense. So he was giving them kind of a, a workshop the next day. So we went to the workshop, you know, and I walked in, and it was just all, you know, middle-aged Taiwanese people and me, you know, I'm a Buddhist monk. Um, and I walked in, and this one woman sat down next to me. I was like, oh, wow, energy. It feels really calm in here. It feels, I can really feel there's something in this room that's really present. And she's like, oh, you can feel energy? What do you feel for me? What is my energy? What do you, you know? And I was like, oh, God, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> and then similarly, like, then also, you know, and then, so the monk came, and he was talking, and it was interesting, because as he was talking, and I was just kind of looking at him, and I just kind of fell into this state, I don't know, this daze kind of. And I started to see, um, like, white light kind of coming up around him, like, surrounding him. And then I was also like, wow, I see this white light, you know. And the one was like, oh, you see white light? You see, that's an aura. You see aura? What is my aura? Do you see my aura? You know, like one of these. Um, but after the talk, I went up to him, and I said, you know, I thank you for the talk, and I really, I, mean, I got a lot from this, and also I see this light around you, and... And it was also interesting because I saw the light go around him, but it stopped here. It stopped at his, below his ears. And I said, but I see that it stopped under your ears. And he had a translator, so he's like, oh. And the translator's like, oh. And he's like, oh. Back to the translator. And then she said, uh, the master says that he keeps his energy hidden um, on his head because that's his connection, you know, up to kind of whatever. And then I was like, oh, really? And then I looked at him, and then I kind of pushed it a little bit, and then I saw this blue light around his head. I was like, okay, now I can see it. It's a blue light. And she's like, oh. And, she, and he goes, oh. And then she said, um, you know, the master says that you have a very special gift. It would be a shame if you wasted it. That's kind of all I got from, the, from that. Um, but he came back every three months. So every three months I would go to these workshops. And, um, and also in the in-between time, he said every, something like every Thursday night at 7 o'clock, um, I'll send you energy. And he was living in Germany. So every night at 7, I'll send you energy. So be in meditation every, night, every Wednesday at 7. I said, okay. So started meditating Wednesday nights at 7. Um, for, you know, and I, in my bedroom, I, I cut kind of like a piece of cloth. Actually, I think I even went to like Home Depot and had them cut like a piece of cloth, put it like in the corner of my room, put a cushion on it, like a salt lamp, a little Buddha statue, you know, I, kind of made a corner of my room, my meditation spot. And I would sit, and I would sit down at, you know, 6.50 or something like this on Wednesday nights, and I would, Thursday nights, and I would sit, and I would start just breathing, relaxing, and then I would start to feel this kind of tingling coming into my body, and I would see this, like, flickering light, kind of, like this flickering light, and it would just kind of be like this big, I'd just go on this weird kind of journey, I don't know, it's very, just, I'd feel like something was happening, and then I'd kind of come out of it, whoa, and I'd look, and you know, sure enough, it was kind of happening between 7 and 7.10, you know, the time that I was being sent this energy. So it was really, you know, this powerful thing. Um, and that's kind of how I just started meditating. Is I, you know, once a week for 10 minutes just sat, and it was painful for my legs. You know, I, I sat with, you know, on my knees with the cushion under my butt, like, and you're just like straddling the cushion. Um, but that kind of started something because I think I aimed just low enough that I could do it continually. I think if I tried to jump into it too much, I would have just, you know, derailed. Like, 
those New Year's resolutions when you're like, I'm going to go to the gym every year. <laughs> Works for like a week and then you stop. Um, so that's kind of how I started. And I did start to notice that during these times, something was shifting. I started to notice that, um, you know, one of the Buddha's last words, or, or his last word, is he said, be an island unto yourself. And it's debated whether he said, be a light unto yourself or an island unto yourself. But, <coughs> but being an island unto yourself. And I really feel that those, those times that I was meditating, um, it was as if I was creating an island for myself, just for that 10 minutes once a week. And during that time, I really felt that my mind was able to rest, was able just to kind of come down to the ground, find some stability, just kind of clear out. You know, and all the different things that I hadn't dealt with would kind of pop up, and then they'd kind of also be able to fly away. So it's also this interesting thing that I noticed that it was almost like um, because there was this tension in my mind, because my mind was always going, there was a lot of big kind of things just under the surface that I wasn't allowing to come out because I was keeping everything um, like moving or irritated or, or almost tight. And as, as I kind of started to loosen my mind and relax, all these things like, whoop, whoop, you know, I say sometimes it's like when you hold a tennis ball underwater and you let go, it's like, whoop, and it pops to the top. It was this feeling that things would come up, um, maybe something someone said to me that I, oh, okay, and I kind of thought, and then I could let it go, and different things would come. And, you know, I also was realizing that, you know, if somebody says something to you, for instance, um, and you can't let it go or something happens, like you'll, your body maybe tightens. And what you don't realize is maybe you'll store that event or that memory in your body. Like you'll hold that tightness in that spot until you kind of sit there, and then you'll feel that tightness. It's almost like the body is the mind's placeholder emotionally sometimes, that if there's something, an event that happens and you don't have time to process it, the body will like tense in a spot to like keep that for you so that you can keep moving and then eventually you can go back and like process it and then the body is like can let it go because you've dealt with that energy. Um, I think a lot of sickness is maybe because we don't deal with stuff so we keep that tension and it just goes forever. Um, but I was, so I would sit there, right, and I would feel this kind of tension in my stomach and then there'd be an emotional an emotional um, kind of a match-up, something that would match up emotionally to that feeling. And then the, the story, the event would come into my mind and I'd be able to kind of reprocess it and then let it go. And so it was kind of this purification process of my mind where slowly I was starting to kind of move through things and let things go. But it was also simultaneously creating kind of this spaciousness and this groundedness that... Um, that the same way, like when you lay down in bed at night, you know, and your body's like, ah, like that nice feeling of just, you know, we don't realize it, but our mind never really gets that because our mind is always going. Even when you go to bed, your mind is still kind of going. Um, and to kind of find that place of rest, but in the mind, it, it was so kind of rejuvenating. It felt very refreshing. Um, Jack Cornfield, he said sometimes people come to his center and bury mass, and when they leave, he says they get the Vipassana facelift um, because they leave and everyone just kind of, you know, everyone comes and they have like these bags under their eyes and they're tired. And they're kind of, 
you know, and he says, but after time, people are kind of slowly practicing and being more mindful and putting things down. And he said, by the time they leave, people seem really buoyant and they're kind of like glowing, and you know, that they're almost like something's younger and then they're more vibrant. So it's like you, you really get a rest. Um, and another way to talk about that, it's simply, you know, if you, if I take my water bottle, right, and you hold it in front of you, right, um, it's not that heavy, but if I had to hold it for five minutes, ten minutes, right, it would start to get heavier. If you hold it for an hour, it starts to get painfully heavy, right? If I could never let go of this water bottle, if it was like attached to my hand, it would be brutally painful. It would be horrible. Debilitatingly so. But if I put the water bottle down for even a couple minutes and it gives me this time to rest, gives my arm time to rest, when I pick it up again, it's again light. Right? So it was also this feeling that I could put my life down for a little bit during these meditations. And then when I re-engaged with my life, they were more manageable. It was easier because I could put it down and my energy could gather again and I could do it. And then something even more interesting started happening is that I would pick up the water bottle and then I'd say, do I really need that much water in it? You know, And I would kind of start emptying some out. And then after a little while, I was like, maybe I should just get a lighter water bottle. You know, So... Every time you kind of go through this process of meditating and coming out of it, meditating, coming out of it, over time, it starts to also bring you more awareness about what's happening in your daily life, how you act and react and interact with the world. Because it's the same mind. It's not, you know, I always say it's not like you sit to meditate and you tie on my meditation hat, and then I meditate, and then I leave my meditation hat and then go in my car and blare my music and yell at people and, you know um, it's the same mind so if I'm doing that stuff out there when I sit here to close my eyes that's the stuff that's going to be coming up right we call that karma right that's the karma right so you do an action and it has a result so the karma of your action is that is that it's making your mind agitated irritated so when you sit to meditate, the state of your mind is actually showing you what, you're do- what is your karma for the way that you live your daily life. Right? They're directly related, directly linked. Which also starts to give you deeper insight into what am I doing? What is my mind doing? How, how am I doing in life? You know, really. Um, so when I graduated college, I then you know, really felt well, A, there was no job or profession or anything that I wanted to do. There's, the world was kind of not so interesting for me to engage in at that time. Um, and I also felt that this is a really important thing to pursue, especially the whole kind of mental-emotional part of it. I really felt that um, I needed to, to kind of heal a lot of things. I needed to kind of grow a lot um, to process a lot. I felt that I was not yet ready for the world. And the monk invited me to come to his monastery in Germany, so I said, okay. So I you know, bought a one-way ticket to Germany. And, and the longer that I was there, the more I felt that this is the place that I need to be. And where I was there, you know, it was meditation every morning at 5 in the morning. And so it was kind of this strict schedule with the meditation times. Then during the day, there's an acupuncture and massage clinic. So 
there was kind of a lot of patients coming in and out, and a lot of the monks were acupuncture doctors and Chinese medicine doctors. So there's the whole medical side of things. And also Chinese medicine, it's all about balance and how our life situation affects our emotions and our minds, and then that expresses itself in the body. And really, we could see that about 95% of the cases of the people that were there, it's stemming from mental, emotional issues that then started manifesting in the body. And it's like a very clear path to how that happens. You know, how different organs represent different emotional states. How the, the, the balance of the body, um, you know, they talk about it in terms of the, the five elements, right? The five elements. You know, so it's like, um, you know, uh, water, water comes in and it, and it feeds plants, right? So because of water, a plant grows, right? And then that plant grows, um, but then that wood, it burns, right? And then that kind of goes down into the ground and becomes like earth again, right? And then over time, it gets deeper in the earth and it becomes metal, right? And then, it, and then the water, it's filtered in through the metal. So the metal filters water, which then again goes into the plant. So it's the cycle. So if you saw somebody and they came in and they maybe had a, like a, a lot of acne on their back, like they broke out a lot, kind of. You'd say, okay, so that's created. And you started to kind of get these cues because the liver, it's too hot. Okay, we say that it's too hot. The liver's too hot. That's an expression of a hot liver. Yeah. So the liver, it's where anger is. So someone that expresses that kind of symptom, like they break out a lot, it's like, okay, this person, there's a lot of anger that's coming through. But you have to kind of trace it backwards. So it's like, well, if there's a lot of fire, that means there's a lot of wood because there can't be fire without something to burn. There has to be a lot of wood, right? So it would kind of trace that back. But for there to be a lot of wood, that means there's an excess of water. So then they would trace it to water, and then water, they would say then, okay, so water, it's actually, that's a lot of, sadness, that's an emotional state, that you'll see that people that are really angry, it's actually because there's emotions inside of them that they haven't really dealt with, right? And they don't have much space for that, and that's why they're, they kind of trigger so much. So we could even see this on the body level, right? That people that had certain bodily expressions, different sicknesses, we could trace it through the organs. And then also, so he would maybe treat, you know, the stomach for something, even though it had nothing to do with the stomach, but because you know, well, we need to balance out these, the elements. One of the most amazing ones that I saw was this elderly man came in, and he had Alzheimer's, um, early onset dementia, like this. And he came in with his wife, you know, he's, I don't know, mid-70s maybe. Um, and, you know, they said, can you do anything? And he looked, and he's like, yeah, we can do something. So the guy laid down, and then, I was helping with the acupuncture, so he would give needles, and I would give needles kind of on the other side, you know, facing him. And he was treating the stomach area. And I kind of looked at him, and I said, why, why are you treating the stomach for this man? And, um, and he kind of looked at me, but then he just kind of waited. And then once, you know, we gave the needles, and we walked out of the room, he looked at me, and he said, so, when this man was a little boy, his parents were very busy. They had a lot to do. There's a lot going on. And so every time that little boy wanted attention, the parents would say to him, not now. Not now, not now. 
And he then started to express himself a little bit more, acted out a little bit. To, well, like, how, how do I get this tension? And then he started getting punished. Like, that's not okay. Stop it. Go to your room. So he started feeling like he's not okay. His emotions are not okay. And the emotional center of the body is when we talk about chakras, right? Um, this goes into the solar plexus, this feeling of expressing your, your I feeling, yourself. If you think about like a king, right? They walk around with their belly out like this, right? This I, I am, right? So this I, expressing your I, right? Because this boy, every time he tried to express his I as a child, he was made to feel like he was a burden. So he started to hold that inside, to, and this would get tighter and tighter, solar plexus, which also then started affecting his stomach because your stomach's right in there, right behind that. Over the time, because his stomach was so affected, it kind of wasn't functioning as well as it should have. So when he would eat, the things wouldn't digest fully, and the proteins then wouldn't be fully digested, and they would go into the bloodstream. The next place they go from the stomach is the liver. And the liver is supposed to like filter things out. But because it couldn't filter things out because it wasn't broken up enough, these big proteins would be in the blood and they would go to the next place, which is the brain. And they were starting to get stuck in the brain because the blood was supposed to be better filtered from these proteins, but it wasn't because of the whole thing. So because there was this blockage in the brain, the blood wasn't, it started to build up so the blood couldn't even flow in properly. And that's why the man started to get dementia. So he was able to trace back dementia of an elderly man to what happened to him as a child. And he could do this with anybody with incredibly accurate, like with incredible accuracy just by looking at you. He could just walk by and look at you and be like, okay, he just knows. So it's kind of like intimidating to be around somebody like that. So I really got this education where I also saw on this very, what I seem, you know, it seemed very just mystical and profound, but also somehow incredibly practical application that, that our environments, our relationship to the environment, the beliefs that that creates, the way that we relate to those beliefs, the way that then we choose to act in the world based on those beliefs, then the results that that brings, then where that kind of leads our life, how all that stuff's really related, how the body and the mind are connected, and also how if we're not really aware of, of our own journey, of our own beliefs, the things that we've internalized, our own mental structures, how that could either be our, our downfall or, or the other way around also. And also how important it is to kind of really examine things and correct them. Because if at any point that man throughout his life had really taken the time to just understand that that, that was my parents, that that was my parents' crap, that was their thing, that wasn't mine, I'm okay. You know, and if he, if he had at any point gone through that little process where he was able to, to heal that and to re-kind of train or program himself to, to understand that he's fine, that he can really express himself freely, he wouldn't have gotten into trouble later on in his life. So there was this whole kind of other aspect of it that I was shown, which was, you know, yeah, very, I guess, honored or fortunate just, just to have witnessed that and to kind of been a part of that. Um, but it also, in, in a very powerful way, made me start to reflect on myself and, yeah, my, my upbringing, my childhood, my times at school, the thoughts I had, the experiences I had, 
and how those trained, programmed me, gave me certain beliefs about the world, about how things are, how I am. Um, and the problem with these is that you think that they're you. You think that they're you. It's like the friend whispering in your ear, giving you good advice. But in reality, it's not actually your friend. But you don't know that. You think it's you. And on top of that, it's kind of like an invisible world. Do you know what I mean when I say it's like an invisible world? It's like um, when I started really going deeper into meditation and I knew kind of some of these basic practices. So the Buddha taught Anapanasati, which is one of the meditation techniques he taught, which is about the in and out breath. So Anapanasati, in breath, out breath, sati, mindfulness. So it's the in and out breath, mindfulness. Um, and you breathe in and out, and then you feel, the, you feel the body breathing, you feel the breath happening, and then you start to feel more calm, more peaceful, more relaxed. You know? And then these feelings start to grow, and then it gets like blissful, it gets ecstatic, it gets really just powerfully like pleasant, pleasurable states. Um, and then that kind of draws the mind deeper and deeper. So this is kind of one of the paths of meditation, and I could also say it's the only path in terms of that the emotional state is what eventually brings you deeper, but I can talk about that a little bit later. But when I heard about this, I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing, right? So I would sit in the mornings and I'd breathe, and I'd, you know, I'd really be try, breathing, breathe, like trying to get this thing, and it's not working, you know, and I'd kind of feel dejected in this, and I'd ask, and they'd say, yeah, just keep trying, keep breathing, you know, really kind of, you know, doing my thing. Um, and it took me years until kind of one day, and I you know, would talk to a lot of different teachers, and I would read a lot of books, and I would kind of do a lot of my own practice. And I, you know, for this specific thing, I got to a point where I saw that, um, and it's funny because I saw also uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, if you guys know Thich Nhat Hanh, so I was at his monastery in France, and um, he invited me to dinner at his hermitage one night. So it was like me, Thich Nhat Hanh, and like two of his um, attendants. And he didn't really talk much the whole time. He just ate very slowly and everything he does is very slow. But then at one point he kind of just looked up and he said, you know, practice is like instant noodle soup. You don't have to wait to enjoy it. And then he looked down and just kind of, you know. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? You know? <laughs> and I, you know, I thought about it, but it came back to this point that I, you know, when I'm meditating and I'm, and I'm breathing, and I started seeing clearly over time, that I was trying to, there's this body and there's breath, and then I was grasping onto the breath. I was holding the breath and trying to get this pleasure feeling from the breath. Okay, so it was like, because I know that you're supposed to breathe and it feels good. So I was holding the breath and I was like, if I can like hold onto the breath tight enough, somehow this pleasure, let's say, you know, like squeezing, you know, trying to like juice like a, like a lemon or something. If I can really get this breath that, pleasure will come out you know but it was more like trying to get you know milk from a rock it was more of like squeezing this thing but you're just kind of nothing's happening and because of that practice I could see on a very deep level that there's something in me that doesn't believe that everything is okay in a very deep level I don't believe everything's okay I always feel like I have to do something or fix something or if then Right? 
if I get this, then I'll be happy, if the, there's a, this big if-then thing. But I don't believe that right now this is it, like this is okay, this is enough. That happiness is here in this moment because I didn't feel that. So I had this really deep ingrained belief that happiness is not available right now, that it's somehow on the other side of my breath, on the other side of practice, when I'm enlightened, when there's this thing. You know, and eventually I could see through the practice of meditation that there is this thing in me, and I really had to sit myself down and be like, Seth, like, it's now or never. You can't wait. Life's not about waiting. It's not like someday I'll be happy. It's like, no. It's like it's now or never. It's, there's a, somebody, I don't know if it was like a Sufi thing, but there was something they were saying about heaven, and they said, what you find now, you will find then. So this understanding that whatever you're doing now, that's, that's what you're going to keep getting. You know, it's, it's not like it comes someday. It's right now. Your relationship right now with your life is the relationship you will have with your life. Right? That's what you get. Um, and this was invisible. This part of me that thought that something's wrong, that, that happiness isn't here, it was invisible. It was, a, it was an invisible belief that only through meditating, through practicing, slowly watching my mind, what my mind is doing, it started to become visible. Right? The invisible started to become visible, and then I could start to deal with it and then let it go find the, the resolution and dissolve it. So the practice of meditation especially, it starts to get more and more subtle. You start to see things on, on a deeper and deeper level, on a more and more subtle level that the, the structure, the structure of your personality starts to become visible. The structure of your beliefs start to become visible. If we talk about a computer, <clears throat> on a computer, there's hardware and there's software. Okay, so the hardware of a computer, the hardware, that's like the actual like material, that's like the drives and the stuff and the circuitry, like that's the hard, that's like the, you know, the actual stuff kind of in there. And then the software, that's all the programs that you run on. Okay, so for most of my practice, it was a lot about dealing with the software on my computer. So it was a lot about going into me and looking at these programs that are running and starting to close the programs that were just ridiculous that I didn't want anymore. You know, things like guilt, things like it's not okay to say no, it's not okay to be happy and do what you want. You know, you should feel bad if you're happy or something like this. Like, you know, all these different programs that I could start to see more clearly, I would start to kind of get rid of them. And then my meditation, and I start to have more space, you know, on my desktop. You know. And then I would... <laughs> Just running with it. Um, so I started to have more space, but then I, I would start to meditate deeper and deeper. And then I would go on, I went on a few meditation retreats. And when I started going on meditation retreats and really getting deeper into that stuff, then I started seeing the hardware. And that's the transition between this being a practice for um, bettering yourself a practice for making your life easier, for understanding things, for healing, and you know. That was the transition when I started seeing the hardware into a, a profound spiritual shift in my relationship and understanding with reality. Because through the meditation, very quickly it becomes apparent that 
um, that these thoughts aren't me. My thoughts are not actually me. You know, then it starts to become apparent these feelings aren't really me. The body isn't really me. And the mind starts letting go of these things. You'll meditate and suddenly you don't feel the room anymore. Then you don't feel the body. Then maybe there's just the breath and this feeling of peacefulness. Then the breath disappears. Then there's just this feeling of peacefulness. Then the feeling of peacefulness starts to intensify and completely just jam the mind with this like pleasure. Then the pleasure starts to move away and then there's just this space and this awareness. Then that all kind of starts to shift and the duality of the mind. So even if you're sitting here because we have these sensory organs, we have this experience of inside and outside, me and not me. There's this me inside of here and then there's this you out there and these eyes see and these ears hear and the body feels. So because of our senses, we're made to very strongly feel an inside and an outside perception. Okay? Through our sense, the sensory organs and make you feel an inside and an outside. But what starts to happen is that we also then, when you're breathing, there's me and my breath. Then there's me and my thoughts. Then me and my feelings. So even when you go deeper, there's this feeling of there's this me, and then there's this other thing. There's this object, a thought, a feeling, or whatever comes up. And eventually, through this meditation, as this pleasure starts building, those two things start merging together, and the duality actually disappears. And the mind becomes unified, and the perception of meditation, in the deep meditation, there's no more separation. There's just a unified awareness and a space, and that's it. There's not, and when you come out of it, it's not like, I am so peaceful, because it's like the whole I feeling doesn't fit anymore either. The whole thing you called me isn't really applicable because that awareness isn't me anymore. And this is like an experience. You just experience like, not, it's not me. So you come back into this place, into this body, into this world, into this character. And it's really this strange feeling, you know, that I'm talking like a, I'm a character. I have this guy called Seth who has this storyline and his feelings and his thoughts and his way of interacting. And it's this, like, character that kind of the awareness goes back into to kind of keep doing things. But it's not really so real anymore. The whole sense of reality kind of breaks down. Yeah, and then this is really, in terms of Buddhism, um, what this meditation ultimately brings you to is you, you get to this point where, um, where the mind really just kind of lets go and opens up and just shows you clearly what, 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 is, what is there um, or what's not there, so to say. So you could think about it kind of like a, like a conical shape is kind of how I think about it for some reason, that on its most gross, if you think about gross and subtle, and its most gross expression, it's our daily life, right? It's the five kids, right? It's the, all the stuff running around out there that you're 
that you're everywhere but here, right? Our daily lives, we're everywhere else. We're, we're completely, through our senses, we're completely out there in the world of duality. We're, we're embedded in the other, in the out there, right? And then the first step happens is that we then come to a space like this where we remove ourselves from being completely out there and now we're kind of just in this space. So we've taken like a one step of retreat, right, from that world into this space. That's like one step of retreat. And then when you start to meditate, you're going to then also you close your eyes, you close your mouth, you kind of close down. And then you take the next step of retreat that you go from being in this place to then being in this place. And then you'll be sitting, you'll feel the body, you'll be breathing. And then you take another step of retreat that you're not really kind of in the body and in the situation. You're more kind of just like in the mental space. And then you take a further retreat and you kind of leave the mental space and it's just kind of like these subtle emotions. And then you take another retreat and you get away from the subtle emotions and it's just kind of like the awareness and the space. Yeah, and I'm sure that it keeps going farther. Um, that's as far as I got, so I can only talk about that. I, I've heard about other things that keep happening, but for myself, I can only say that it at least gets to this place where there's just this space and this awareness and this timelessness, you know. Um, so it's this process of, um, of distillation. It's distilling the experience. And all the things that aren't you, that aren't really your essence, start to drop away. So that life, okay, that's just my story. Because it's true. Like when you, when you run away, if somebody ran away from home, that wouldn't be their life anymore. They're, they're somewhere, it's different, right? When you die, this body's not, okay, so actually the body is temporary, Right? Thoughts, they come and they go. Oh, they're also, feelings come and go. They're also temporary, right? So all of these parts of you that are not really your essence start to kind of just drop away. And it starts to get more and more subtle, more and more subtle, um, until there's kind of like the awareness in the space. And then from what I've heard from other monks, it even gets deeper to the fact that you can kind of see the awareness as just individual arising moments. So it's even this feeling of awareness as being like this deepest essence of me they even see that that's just made up of little bits arising, that there's not even, there's actually nothing in there to grab at all. And in Buddhism, they talk about non-self because of that. They say, ultimately, if you go all the way in, there's not this thing that you can grab onto that's you. It's actually just this conglomeration of stuff, but there's not one thing at the end of the tunnel that's your, ah, now, you know, and this is very much like the Hindu philosophy, right? The Atman, right? So there's this, there's this soul, there's this big soul that we're all a part of or something. And Buddha's like, no, it's like if you go all the way in, you'll realize that you're just a process. And if you look around nature, you'll see the same thing, that nature, it's just these processes. It's rain falling in the ocean and, you know, evaporating and coming back. And um, if you look around, everything is just moving in these processes of things kind of coming together, growing, manifesting a flower, it's sunlight, it's water, it's seed, it's earth. Um, and it kind of grows as long as the conditions are right. If it's too hot, the flower dies. If it's too much water, the flower dies. But as long as everything's balanced, that flower grows and it's there for as long as it can be. But then eventually, just genetically, it's, that's as far as it can go. So then it dies and it becomes part of everything again. And then it, again, kind of becomes earth and water. And, you know, our bodies are the same way, right? If, you know, any little thing shifted in the environment, if gravity stopped, if the sun exploded, whatever, you know, or even if you got, you know, a, a drop of, um, I think I heard once, if you got a single bubble of oxygen in your blood that goes to your brain and gives you like an aneurysm or something. I don't know if that's exactly it. 
but something happens. But, um, but so the conditions of everything are so delicately balanced, they say it's like a rainbow. Because when you see a rainbow, it's easy to see how kind of balanced and ephemeral a rainbow is. We know if that if anything shifts a little bit, if the sun moves, the rain moves, if you move, that rainbow kind of disappears. But actually, if you really look, that's how everything is. Everything is only in existence because everything else around it is in a certain way that allows that thing to exist. Yeah? If, if something shifts, then other things shift, everything shifts. So when you start to really get deeper into nature, you see that, that everything is this big web that's all interconnected and it's all shifting together and it's shifting. And if one thing changes, everything else changes and it's all kind of moving. So there's nothing that's really separate from anything else if you really get down to it. And conversely, everything also exists because everything else exists. So when you see that these are kind of some basic principles of nature, and you know that we are also nature, right? We are. We don't come from somewhere else. Like we are nature. Like we, everything in the universe is the universe, right? This is also universe material. We are also universe. So when you see how nature functions, then you could turn that in words and really say, okay, so if everything is kind of connected and everything is shifting, everything is this, so where does that leave me? How do I proceed from that place? And the Buddha, he spoke about the Eightfold Path. And what that pretty much is talking about is saying that if you want to grow a flower, like I said before, you need a seed, you need water, you need sunlight, you need time, you need space, you need the climate, you need consistency. So you need all these specific things for that flower to grow. So the Buddha said if you want to grow a mind of freedom, if you want to grow a mind of peace, there's kind of these specific conditions. There's these different steps to follow. Um, and it's not steps like first you do this, then you do this, but it's more like conditions. It's more like they have to kind of come together. And a lot of these, so one of the things I've kind of realized in the West when we go to meditation classes and people talk, the whole biggest kind of point that's missing is the fact that your daily life and your meditation are the same thing. And if you really want to start having a peaceful mind, you also have to start changing the way you live your life. That those things can't be separate. You can't get in like a big fight with somebody over the phone and this happens and you, you know, and then you come and you sit here and you expect to be peaceful. It doesn't work like that. You're going to, you know, if you create a mess in your house and you go home, your house is going to be a mess, right? So if you're creating a mess in your mind and you go home into your mind, you're going to have to sit in that mess. So it's really important to start cleaning up, actually cleaning up your mind, cleaning up your life. And this is something, I guess that's not often talked about because kind of nobody wants to hear it. Because everyone's like, I'm already doing so much, you know, or I just, you know, I, do I, I really have to, you know, I have to change? I have to do, you know. Nobody really wants to change. It's hard for us, right? But, um, but it's kind of that silly thing that, you know, we, we want the results without going through the process to get them. So we have more and more a result-based mindset. Um, that we want the instantaneous, you know, and I work in schools, I teach meditation in schools, and yeah, first they tried throwing kids in detention, that didn't work, so then they tried throwing kids on medication, that didn't necessarily work, now they're trying to throw kids on meditation. And I'll tell you, it's not going to work either, even though it's my job, I'll tell you. Because it's not the point. Yeah, 
you can't keep throwing things at a problem and expecting it. Ah, you know, there's not like that one thing and that's finished. It's, you really have to look at things more holistically. Um, so, so for meditation, one thing that's super important is that you're, you're living your life in a way that's in your integrity, which means that you feel um, kind of like your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions are in one stream. And I could actually maybe even summarize the whole path as only that. That when you're really honest to yourself, the way that you live is really honest to yourself, you'll feel this natural kind of joy and lightness and ease. And when you close your eyes and your mind, you're already in that place. And then you kind of just go right into it, right? So we can meditate tonight without changing your life at all, and you'll find peace, right? So it does happen. It's not like it's, not like it's hopeless, right? It does happen, but then you're going to leave this room and you're going to go back into your life and life is right, it's flying back in your face again. Right? You have to pick up the water bottle and it's filled with all this stuff. Right? So you have to start emptying it out. You have to start kind of really allowing yourself to be transformed, really willingly transforming yourself for your own benefit. And then also meditation, it'll also start to you'll start to already kind of be in the zone, even like when you sit down to go into it. Like for me, I can just sit and close my eyes and smile, and I'm like, ah. you know. It's really easy just to kind of get into it because I've done a lot of the back work, you know. And it'll happen, you know. My first meditation retreat, I sat. It was a five-day retreat, and I think we sat for like, I don't even know, seven hours a day or something or eight hours a day. And I just relived my entire life. I like literally just sat... And I was like, there's my childhood, there's my school. And all the things that I hadn't dealt with were just, just coming up, one after the other after the other. And it was miserable, it was horrible. But it was also real. It was like, oh, that's honest, that's what's going on. It's just all that stuff has been stored and not dealt with, and now it wants to express, it wants to be seen, felt. So, so it's really important to, to simply see it as these two tracks, that on one track... The meditation, it's the practice itself. It's the sitting, right? It's the actually taking the time to sit, to breathe, to let the mind rest, to become familiar with that state, what it feels like to kind of just be chilled out, more peaceful. And then also coming back into our life, looking, why isn't my life like that? Why doesn't my life feel like that? And really trying to understand it deeply. And sometimes understanding is enough. Right? We always think we have to jump over these huge hurdles. Right? If, um, um, how can I say it? You know, I, I've been walking my girlfriend's dog and it's like not really well trained. I said this like a couple nights ago to meditation. It's not really well trained, so I was getting like upset at it and I was trying to like be really strict with it and train it. And then I kind of saw it and like really thought about it. And I thought, you know, she had this dog for 10 years. This dog was like her best friend, so that dog thinks it's a person. And it's like 10 now. Um, you know, so there, I'm not going to really change much of that. But I can like kind of curb that behavior. But also for me to get frustrated is like, wow, you know, means it's ridiculous. And I kind of understood the situation. So even the dog was kind of, you know, still not really doing what I wanted. I kind of was able to find like a middle way where I was like, okay, 
Sometimes we'll kind of do a little bit what you want to do, and then sometimes we'll kind of do more what I want to do. Ultimately, I get the say because I have the leash, but like we'll still kind of like, you know, and it allowed me to find peace with the situation, right? Whereas without the understanding, I was just like trying to pull it by my, like, no, you have to stay by me. You can't go running off every time you want to, you know? So when we start to understand situations better, because then ultimately, if I take that a step back, then I look at myself, well, Seth, why do you get frustrated when something's not going your way? Why do you get frustrated when you don't have control over a situation? You know, and then I'm like, well, I guess when I'm trying to get that dog to do what I want, it runs away. I somehow feel like, in a weird way, almost like power, like a powerless feeling. Like I don't have control. I'm like, control is helpless. And that feeling is like terrifying for me. And I think I felt that a lot when I was a kid. And my parents were like really hard on me and things. And so I guess I actually have like a lot of trauma around feeling like powerless, like deeply powerless. And so I try to control things to not have to get in touch with that feeling, you know. And then I was like, wow, okay, you know. And then, then I could really go into that and be like, well, like, you know, ultimately, do you have power over anything, actually? You know, what do you really have power over, actually? You know. And then you start to even understand yourself. And then when I want to control things, I really can look at myself and be like, Seth, I understand you. You know, and not feel like I need to break through this whole control issue thing. You know, it brings more to be kind to yourself, to understand yourself, than it does to make yourself that ideal person that you're always trying to be but never quite make it. Because those ideals are ridiculous. That's like we're beating ourselves over the head all day long with this stick to be something, this ideal that we're holding on ourselves that actually nobody else is necessarily holding on us. Maybe our parents did. Maybe we surround ourselves with other people that reinforce that to keep us thinking, yeah, right, it's important that I'm like this kind of a person. But actually, we're doing it to ourselves. And it never ends because we just hold all of these really high standards that have nothing to do with being human. So we're actually dehumanizing or inhumane to ourselves, right? So we treat ourselves probably more harshly than we treat anybody else. Right? Because we're always holding ourselves to these impossible standards. And we think that somehow, someday, if we're perfect enough, we'll be able to fulfill those standards. If I'm a good person, if I'm a good mother, good partner, good friend, good teacher, good whatever. You know, if, if, if then, right? It's that if-then mindset. If I can do this, then, finally. But it's endless, and, it, and it's not realistic. You know, it brings much more... One of my monk brothers once said to me, instead of always trying to jump over the hurdle, why don't you try going under the hurdle? You know, if you're not meeting your expectations, why not try lowering the expectation? Why are we always trying to meet our expectations? Why not bring the expectation down? You know, and I've been working on this, and I tell you guys, it's really hard. For me specifically, this is like one of the hardest things. I'm working on this right now. It's like my main practice. So hard. Right? I was like in a monastery. I was monk, like meditating every day, very structured, like all this stuff. Come back here. It's like, yeah, it's just like, I watched like two of the Matrix movies today. I was like hanging out, like doing nothing. Like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to do shit. I just want to like, I don't have to, right? Because I work at night and I just do this. And during the day, I have free time. And I'm like, oh, you know, Seth, like you should go do mantras and you should go work out and you should do this. And I was just like, I, yeah, you're right. So, like all day long, I'm like in my head, like, Seth, you should be doing this. You should be, do-, you know? And it's like the whole day long, I just feel like I should be doing something else that I'm not doing. 
and then I have this free time, which I'm just so exhausted that I can't even really enjoy it. And it's interesting because when I go home and I, and I say my parents, <clears throat> my father, one of the first things he usually says to me, he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, I saw this thing in the news. You know what you should do? You should. I'm like, oh, that's where it comes from. Okay. Right? That his way of relating to me is to tell me what I should be doing. Here's what you should, you know, you should be doing this. You should do that. Oh, this is a good idea. You should do this. You know. So to really start looking deeper and deeper and deeper at that stuff. And it's hard because especially for me, right, it's like, you know, in life you, you, you have a kind of personality or a character, right? You have this life, you have these relationships. So you think if I change, I'm going to maybe lose everybody, right? If I'm not this perfect person, if I'm not this ideal, if I'm not something, everyone's going to hate me. Or I'll be a failure. That's like a big one a lot of us feel like we're going to be a failure, right? But it's like, guys, like we're already failures, all of us, because you, we can't, you know what I mean? Because we're holding this thing up there and you're trying to, and you can't do it. Like, fail already. Like, let's just fail, you know? Let's just fail and be like, all right, I failed. <laughs> can't do it. It's over. I give up. I'm a horrible, terrible human being, but now I can finally at least relax. <laughs> you know because what is this really about like what are we really doing here you have this little life you know when we're in school and when we're kids in your family it's really drilled into you this is what right and wrong means this is what success and failure means this is what it means to be a polite person and a good person you get to school, it's really drilled into you. This is what you need to succeed. This is what success looks like. This is what failure looks like. This is the way to move forward. This is when you get punished. So you have to do. You get out of school, and then there's just this big open world that doesn't necessarily have any rules. So then you maybe carry your own rules into your life, or you find a job or a relationship or something that again, you can have these relation po relationship points that let you know when I'm doing well, when I'm not doing well. Yeah, am I doing well when I make a lot of money? Am I doing well when the, my kids aren't fighting with me? Am I doing well when I get to the gym? That we keep trying to measure ourselves to see how we're doing. Um, but life, it's an open, there's nothing you have to, you could, you could strip off your clothes and wear the tree bark on your body and crawl around the forest saying that you're a bark monster. And that honestly makes just as much sense as everything else that we're doing all day long. At the end of the day, what really matters? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah? We're all going to die. We're all going to end up in the same place. You know, but if you're happy being a bark monster, I would say maybe that's actually a better life choice than, uh, you know, working at the law firm where... You're a highly respected person making a lot of money, but you're miserable all day long. You know? And then it's, of course, then that whole thing about how do I find the balance? How do I live the life that I want? How do I manifest? Blah, 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 blah. New spiritual words that are flying around, right? But it's just kind of like really just looking deeply and understanding things and seeing. And things kind of start to shift by themselves. Things start to fall away by themselves. And then also you kind of start letting go of things, right? You maybe put on a pair of sweats instead of dressing up. You maybe 
don't go to the gym and eat an ice cream and feel great about yourself. You maybe just, you know, you maybe realize that happiness is the most important thing. Kindness, real inner peace, like really accepting yourself. And it's hard to accept ourselves. It's hard. It's really hard. There's, um, it's, um, I just saw on the news, um, what was it? Some, some guy in the government just got, like, arrested for, like, sexting with, like, a 15-year-old girl and, like, something like... Anthony Weiner. Yeah. Anthony yeah. Weiner. <laughs> His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. <laughs> Mr. Weiner, right? So, the Weiner, the Ween, if you will. Yeah, so, he, so, so he got busted, right, for sexting a 15-year-old. And, uh, and now he's pleaded guilty, and he said, you know, I have an illness, and it's destructive, and all this stuff. This is like what he says. And I read that, and I was like, you know, I don't think that guy has an illness. I think that's what a lot of people want to hear from him, because we like to vilify people like that. But, I mean, I know that we have, like, laws about, like, what you can do and stuff. And, like, okay, you broke the law, right? And it's like... You know, but it's kind of like when I really looked deeply into that, I was like, okay, so it's like a 50-year-old guy that likes 15-year-old girls. Like, yeah, there's laws against that, but, like, I don't think you're a monster. It's not like this, like, you're a... Like, we really like to vilify people, like this feeling of vilification, vilifying people that do things that don't... either that we wouldn't do or that don't fit into our social constructs. In a lot of other countries, girls get married at 15, I'm not saying it's like right or wrong, because I think I work in like middle schools. There's a lot of middle school girls that have emotional intelligences higher than a lot of adults that I know. Yeah, just saying that like how mature somebody is doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their age. The rules, the laws are in place to protect people just in case. But if you really just look at people as people, like emotional maturity is kind of an open thing. You know, so the fact that we like to vilify, you know, I thought that was really fascinating that that's what he came out with that said, like, pretty much said, like, I'm a monster and I'm trying to get help for it because it's a sickness and an illness. And I'm like, that's what we're all doing to ourselves all day long on some level, I feel, that we're all looking at the parts of ourselves that don't fit. And we feel like we're a monster in that sense, that we're a bad person, that we're a villain, that we're, you know, that there's something. And, like, if that thing ever came out, that would be, like, the end of us, right? Like, we're not hurt. Like, we don't fit. Like, we're weird. Like, you know. Um, one of the most freeing things I think I realized is that everybody's weird. You know? That this idea of normal, that's because... Um, it's like if you took like a hundred circles and you put them all kind of roughly in the same place, there'd be like some rough overlaps. So the places that most of the circles overlap, that's called normal. But what we forget is like all those circles also kind of go off in other directions. And a lot of us only allow ourselves to express like our weirdness maybe, maybe like with our family and friends. Maybe some people only can express their weirdness when they're drunk or alone in the car, like when no one can see them singing like Alanis Morissette or something. Maybe just like alone in the shower. Maybe there's some people that don't even allow themselves to express their weirdness, to express the fact that they're just different, that they don't, you know. And that weirdness could be anything. It could just be like, I'm lazy. 
I don't really care that much about other people. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, whatever that thing is that we don't necessarily want people to know or we don't want to like feel or say, like, what if we really just looked at that and we're like, okay, like, maybe that's just how I am. And then you kind of look around at everyone else and you're like, you know, I bet every single other person has their own thing like that, something that you just think like that would be the end of it. But often that's really when transformation happens, is when we start getting deeply, 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 deeply honest with ourselves. And we start really facing our internal consequences for things in a good way. You know? And I could say for myself, like my biggest growths in my, on my path in the monastery were the times that really the things that I didn't want to talk about, that I didn't want to look at, that I didn't want to bring out, I shared. You know, and I felt terrified, I felt vulnerable, I felt really like, you know, but it always allowed such like a healing to happen. And also I felt like I didn't have to hide anything anymore. And it's so freeing to really just kind of like, you know, it, it's even like for me, like doing these rounds, I feel like it's still taken me like a little while, like I'm better at it now to just be like a normal person when I'm teaching, you know. Like, especially when I was a monk, right? I'm wearing, like, a monk robe. I'm sitting there, you know, you know, and everyone looks at me like I'm this holy figure, and they're coming and, like, bowing at my feet and stuff. And it's like, so you have to kind of play the part a little bit because, like, that's how the whole thing is set up somehow. And it was kind of miserable because I was like, I kind of want to, like, go to a club or something. Like, I want to just to go dance and, like, meet girls or something. But, like, you know, can't do that either, right? So, you know, I felt like there was all these parts of me that were, like, wrong. And then when I finally decided to disrobe, I was like, ah, it's actually not wrong. It's just that, that if you live this life, this is what that framework is. And if you don't want to follow that framework, then you don't have to live that kind of a life. And I was like, oh, it's just a choice. Um, so, so this all kind of ties back in. I'm kind of just feeling things out and rambling. I wasn't planning on talking about the ween or anything. <laughs> but... Um, but I think really it just comes back to really what are we all doing here? Like really what is this all about? Is we're really just trying to find some kind of help for ourselves. We're looking for some kind of solace, some kind of benefit, some kind of peace and relaxation. And um, I think that things like meditation, things like yoga, things like walking in the forest are amazing supports. They kind of put your, they kind of stand your mind up. They stand you up. And then you'll walk out of the door, and then you'll kind of slowly fall over again, right? But the more that you kind of stand it up, maybe you'll fall over slower next time. Maybe parts of you will stay standing slowly. And even if not, even if you just stand up and you go outside and you just fall down again, and you come back and you stand up and you go out and you fall down again, at least you keep standing up, right? At least you keep at least bringing your mind back to this place, you know, where you're just kind of like everything's okay and you're kind of just, it's okay, like the, it's like a, you know, it's like a battlefield out there and here it's like, okay, just chill out, it's fine. You don't have to be strong all the time, it's okay. Um, you know, just, just become, becoming familiar with that place, it gives us sanity. And I think that's the main thing, is that the world is insane. Um, all of us are a little bit insane or a lot insane. Um, and it's just important to kind of reconnect to the sanity. 
sometimes the sanity that says like like it's okay like it's enough you've done enough you are enough like just chill the fuck out you don't have to do anything else it's not don't make meditation one more thing that you have to do to like you know it's not about that it's really giving yourself a break being kind putting stuff down like if meditation teaches you nothing else it's like be kind be gentle like take care of yourself be nice to yourself love yourself right love So it's already 8.30, so I guess we're not meditating. Okay, we'll meditate a little bit. So get in a position that you feel comfortable. That you feel stable, you feel relaxed. Taking a few deep breaths in through the nose, filling your body, out through the mouth. A few more times. Really deep in, filling yourself fully, and out through the mouth, releasing, letting go. As you're sitting with your eyes closed, breathing, I brought with me a little bell. So I'll ring the bell a few times, just listening to the sound. Closed our eyes, we relax our eyes. We relax the muscles in our face. Our shoulders. Down our arms. Relax our chest and our belly.
down our legs and feet. in the ground beneath us and the space around us. Feeling our breath flowing in and out. Just allowing our mind to rest. There's nothing you should be doing. Maybe just allowing yourself to feel peaceful. These few precious moments that you have to yourself today.
just resting and breathing. Don't worry about the mind wandering. Just notice when the mind returns. And every time the mind returns, just try to relax a little bit deeper. Taking deep and full breaths.
Taking three deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. Filling yourself completely in the inhalation, emptying on the exhalation. Rub your hands together until they're warm. Rub your face, your eyes, your ears. Your back, legs. Slowly open your eyes, shake out, stretch out. 